Amen. I want to encourage you to turn with me um, in your Bibles to the book of James, James chapter 5 in particular. Um, As many of you know, we have been walking our way through this letter that is in the very back of our New Testament, um, the letter that James pins to a group of struggling Christians. And there's a couple things I want to say just as a caveat before um, I read this text. And by the way, we're going to pair the reading of this passage with a reading um, from another section of Scripture, particularly Psalm 81, um, just to help us see some thematic connection between the two testaments of the Bible. But a couple caveats I want to say. First of all, if you've been with us as we've walked through this letter, you will know that James says some harsh things. If you remember a few weeks ago, He brought up the fact that when we're careless with our mouths, with the words that come from them, we're actually participating in a very real way with evil. And I just want to make the point that as I have been preaching through this and as I've said some of these hard things, I just want you to know that um, I say them to you because at least I see them in me. So I'm with you. Okay, second, just caveat, I've been saying all along that James writes to a group of struggling and suffering Christians, and tonight, really, almost for the first time, we get a deeper glimpse into what the exact struggles were. These Christians were being mistreated, particularly by those who were wealthy and powerful and elite in their culture, and we're going to get a hint at that tonight. So I want to say those things before we read, but having said that, would you listen carefully and closely to this God's word from Psalm 81? Would you listen to these words? The Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. And from James chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, listen closely to these words. Come now, you rich Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, 
until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in your kindness and in your mercy, we ask that you would do the thing that only you can do. We ask by the power of your spirit that you would shine light on these words in your word, however difficult. Lord, and you would shine light in the dark places of our hearts, however musty and hidden. And that you would use these words to great effect in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, to make us the people you'd have us be, we pray. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our coming Lord. Amen. So when you were in high school or when you were in college, did you ever know that student? I'm going to describe that student to you. That student that didn't really take seriously the learning of the material, but instead would simply cram the night before, or perhaps three hours before, or perhaps one hour before, or perhaps 30 minutes before to try to learn enough information simply so that it could just pass the test. Did y'all know that student? This is a good time to tell you I was that student. And every now and then, that strategy would fail. See, normally I would walk in having crammed and I would tell everybody, don't talk to me, don't talk to me. It's like right here. And then I would take the test as fast as I could. But every now and then, prior to the exam, the professor or the teacher would say this dreaded sentence. And we go like this. By the way, the exam on Friday will be cumulative. This is a very bad word. <laughs> that means you'll have to know not just the stuff for that test, but it's going to build on everything that had come before. That is a weird way to introduce this text. But it's the thing I kept thinking of. Because in this passage of scripture here, James is going to talk to us about wealth and possessions. 
And he's assuming that this talk he is going to give to us is cumulative. Like everything that the Bible has taught about wealth and possessions to this point is in your mind. Now, in the chance that it's not, I'm going to catch you up as we go. Secondly, James is going to talk to us in this second section about how Christians are to respond in the face of mistreatment and persecution. And again, he's assuming everything that the Bible talks about throughout the pages up until this point. And in case that's not up and running in your mind in this moment, don't worry. I'm going to catch you up. Now, as we talk about these two sections, wealth and possessions and the warnings there and how to respond in the face of suffering and mistreatment and persecution, James is trying to chisel at one main idea. And I'm going to tell you that idea right now out loud. I don't want you to miss it. It's the main thing I want you to hear tonight. In this passage, James wants us to to see that our God in time will right every wrong, and he will vindicate every kind of suffering. In time, he'll right every wrong, and he'll vindicate suffering of all kinds. And in keeping with the test theme, is that truth, A, a harsh warning to you and to me? Is it B, an enormous relief for you and for me? Or is it C, both? And what we're going to see is that it's both. In this text and in this sermon, you're going to hear a warning that is intended to shake us up. And I'll have to do the shaking. We're also going to hear enormous relief at the same time. So let's take a look. Look with me, look with me at verse 1 of chapter 5. And as I explain, and as you catch you up on this wealth and possessions section, I want you to ask yourself, hold on a second, is James talking to me? Look with me at verse 1. I'm not making this up. It literally says this. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, one thing you have to know, that when any biblical writer or speaker or preacher is talking in terms like this, come now, in other words, let me have your attention, you rich, Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. You have to know, it's cumulative stuff here, that the writer is in a full-on prophetic mode. The writer is preaching and proclaiming something that is supposed to be jarring and upsetting for you and for me. And it's interesting, this phrase, you rich, somewhat of a loaded phrase in the scriptures. It occurs in many places. 
And it's really talking about people who enjoy a lot of material comfort. But in particular, they misuse that material comfort and security, wealth, to harm others. So that's kind of where we are. And right here, James is going to outline, it's almost like a court case. There's four kind of points of evidence as an indictment that he's bringing to these people who have a lot of money and are misusing it. Four indictments. Let's look at the first one, verses two and three. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. The first indictment here is that these people have stored up treasure, but it's treasure that will not last. It will be gone. The language of, of rust and moth, this is classic biblical language, especially from the words of Jesus about how we can spend our whole lives trying to accumulate something that just won't last. You know, the interesting thing is that in the scriptures, we are never told to not accumulate treasure. Isn't that interesting? But what we're told is to accumulate treasure that will actually last. And treasure that actually lasts in a biblical sense is the investment in things that are eternal, which are often things that are somewhat invisible and hard to see, but that will endure. Someone very close to me spent literally his whole life, since he was 18, working in order to store up treasure security, comfort. In the financial crash of 2008, he watched all of that go away in about 37 minutes. It was a lesson in how fleeting a certain kind of treasure can be. James goes on to say the accumulation of that treasure that does not last will actually end up being evidence against you when Christ returns. That is a strong statement. The second thing, verse four, indictment number two, verse four. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ear of the Lord of hosts. Indictment number two. Some of these people have defrauded or unfairly not paid the people who worked for them. And James tells us that the Lord has heard their cries. That is a very, very strong statement. Whenever the Lord hears the cries of someone who's been wronged, it's a symbol or it's a sign, I should say. It's it's a warning that he will come to do something about that. A friend of mine who 
When I say a friend of mine, sometimes that's veiled language, but in this case, they're not in this room, okay? I have a friend who is in construction, and he was working for a particular very, very wealthy client. And this client was refusing to pay these day laborers who worked at this person's house and drug it out on and on and on and refused to pay and refused to pay and kept being picky about things and refused to pay and refused to pay where finally the day laborers said, you know what, never mind. And the wealthy client said, great, it's been great working with you. And when my friend was telling me this story on the phone, he was weeping because the wrong of the world had laid upon his heart so heavily in that moment. There's a third indictment. Verse five, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence, and you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter or for a day of slaughter. James is saying that these people, not only have they built up treasure that was, won't last, not only have they not paid people fairly, but further, they've been completely unconcerned and oblivious. Self-indulgently accumulating more and more and more and more and more. And James says in their doing that, they're only fattening themselves up for the judgment of God. It is a very, very strong kind of biblical statement. Y'all, sometimes, this is me being very honest with you. Um, I, the Lord provides for my needs very generously, okay? But I'm not exactly in the kind of work that I'm going to just make an insane amount of money, like, ever onward and upward, Okay? But I see people sometimes who make a ton of money and use it on self-indulgence. If I'm being very, very, very honest, there are times where I wish I could do that. A fourth indictment. Verse six, you have condemned and, ready, murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, James is speaking in extreme terms to make a point. Very likely, these wealthy folks that James is talking about have not literally murdered a person but they might as well have. Because the term here, you murder, is something of a judicial term. The idea is that they bullied these people in court to the point where they kind of annihilated them, if you will. And James goes on to say, they don't even resist you. In other words, they don't even have a chance. They have to walk into that courtroom and they have to plead no contest. The question is, is James talking about you and about me here? 
I think the answer to that question is no and maybe. Let me explain. In the one sense, no. If you guys remember John Colburn's sermon from a month or so ago now at least, he talked about wealth in the ancient world, that there was a concentrated group of powerful elite that held all the wealth, that held all the power. Getting on those people's good side was kind of the key to actually advancing in the world. If you remember, the warning was to not show favoritism against those, toward those kinds of people because of what they can do for you. James is imagining something more like a very powerful, ultra-wealthy, elite, corrupt leader of some kind. And the honest truth is that there aren't maybe many of us in this room that can fit that bill. But on the other hand, the answer is is maybe. And let me explain. See, it'd be a little too easy to say, oh, James is only envisioning something like the oligarchs in Russia. Although that'd be a pretty good comparison. See, because the scriptures again and again and again and again, again, a cumulative thing from Genesis all the way up into this moment will constantly remind us over and over and over again that material comfort and wealth, that those of us in this room enjoy is an extremely dangerous major obstacle to our following of Jesus. Y'all, if I were to go home, first of all, I would get in a car that I own to go there. Secondly, I would go into a house that I own. Thirdly, when I walk in that house, I mean, I'm not joking you, I can touch a little button and it'll make the temperature go up or down. If I were to open that refrigerator, it will have food in it. The pantry will also. There will be clothes and drawers to wear. And statistically speaking, if all of those things are true of me, I am wealthier than 75% of the world's population. And hear me, I'm about to say something bold. You and I are not supposed to feel guilty or ashamed of that. But, but, By the way, there's a popular market to help you feel guilty and ashamed about that. There are political philosophies to help you feel ashamed about that. There are religious frameworks and ways of thinking to make you feel deeply ashamed about that and guilty about it, but that wouldn't be the right kind of guilt. Instead, instead, you and I should know that reality, be aware of it, and be extremely careful and on guard for our hearts and our souls. We should vigilantly watch our hearts and our souls because the scriptures would teach we are in spiritual peril because of that. We have to own that responsibly. Secondly, the scriptures would teach that we should be extremely thoughtful, that every dime in your bank account, every penny in your bank account, 
every stitch of clothing, every piece of food or, or drink has been given to you in order that you could use those to be a blessing to others, every bit of it. Even more boldly, perhaps, in a room like this, every minute of your time is the same way. Have you ever noticed how it's easier to give away $100 than one hour? We're to be extremely careful and extremely thoughtful that every bit of what God has blessed us with would be invested in that which matters more for the good of others. See, James wants us to know that he has, God has promised to right every wrong. And that is supposed to be a serious warning to you and I. But if when I just explained all of that, if the hairs on the back of your neck stood up from the kind of stand-up that happens when you feel the weight of conviction... Let me offer you a little relief and hope. Christ died to forgive sin and self-indulgent attitudes. He has purchased your pardon. And he invites you and I to walk a different road. And let me just tell you something. If you and I will walk a different road with regard to these things, we won't for a second be sorry. I'm sweating up here. And it's not just because it's hot in here. Okay, this second section, how are God's people to respond to mistreatment? Say God's people are being treated poorly by people in power. Here's what the scriptures teach, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Again, in the scriptures, cumulatively here, to be patient is not to sit idly by passively. To be patient in the face of mistreatment in the scriptures is to diligently and carefully cling to the promises of God every single day. That's the Bible's idea of waiting. Be patient. James encourages a second thing. Look with me at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Again, a cumulative thing here. Throughout the pages of the scriptures, persecution of God's people always has this strange effect. Like as God's people feel pressed and persecuted, the strange effect is that the pressure of that, they turn inwardly in fighting with one another. We would not have a New Testament if it weren't for persecution and then the fighting among one another that happens. In other words, be patient, and while being patient, preserve your unity. And then you heard me read it, and I'll move kind of quickly through this. But James then gives two examples of that kind of patience. 
And they're not the kind of examples you necessarily want to follow. First of all, the prophets. And let me remind you who the prophets were in the pages of the Bible. The prophets were these people who were called to speak the truth about God. And they faced enormous opposition because of it, but yet they stayed faithful. James is saying, be like that. Tell the truth, stay faithful. And then the second example he gives, again, it's not always the kind of example you'd naturally want to follow. Job. Job is this quintessential example of the Bible of one who stayed steadfast, trusting in the character of God through every suffering. And it's very interesting because in the Job case, he's not actually facing mistreatment by someone wealthy and powerful. Job actually was godly and righteous and wealthy and powerful. But yet he began to face mistreatment, if you will, from evil, the power of evil, Satan himself. There are people in this room in a really pronounced and particular way, you're feeling the weight of darkness. Sometimes you feel like supernaturally the enemy is prowling around seeking to destroy you. You're right. Sometimes you feel like the weight of the world is crushing you and pressing you into its mold. You're right. Sometimes you feel like your own sinful fleshly appetite is running rampant. You are right. Sometimes you're living in the face of someone who's harming you in ways that are beyond the text. The scope of this text is very real. And what Job did was be honest about the pain of that while at the same time trusting in God's character. James is saying, be like that. He ends by a warning about oaths. In other words, these Christians who are being mistreated would be tempted to swear these big oaths, to make all these extravagant promises. I promise I'll never do that again in order to try to evade persecution. And James is saying that's unwise. It only shackles you further. But the main thing James is trying to get you and I to see is that our God promises to right all wrongs. And this should come across to you as an enormous relief. And hear me here. Look me in the eyes when I say this. Not one second of any sort of suffering that you have endured will ever be wasted. And if you will steadfastly cling to the promises of God in the face of it, you won't be sorry for one second. Let's pray. Lord, you do not promise us ease. What you do promise us as if we'll turn to you in our sinfulness. 
if we will cling to your promises in our suffering, that we won't be disappointed. And I pray that that hope would be so real. And I pray that these truths would change our hearts in ways that are so profound. This would be a work of your spirit, so we ask that you would do it. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.